Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to learn about the most inspiring people living, working, and recreating along the American shorelines. And, you know, it's been a few months since we've had someone with a deep connection to Maine on the show other than myself. And I know that you all were probably really worried about that. So have no fear. Another Maine adjacent episode is here. Um, And if you fall on the flip side of that and think that I talk about Maine too much, I suggest that you take a break and a long, hard look at your priorities because there is no such thing. Um, that's enough of that silliness and in all seriousness we are going to talk about issues that span far beyond Maine today but it's very much worth noting that my guest and the organization that he runs are based in the great state of Maine Um, I am joined today by Peter Neal and Peter is an author and an editor on environmental and ocean issues He is also the founding director of the World Ocean Observatory, which is a web-based place for education and information exchange about the health of the ocean. I also consider Peter a pioneer in the ocean and conservation podcasting space. Many of you may be familiar with his show, World Ocean Radio. And if not, I would highly recommend you check it out because it is quite informative. And in addition to the World Ocean Observatory and World Ocean Radio, he has, uh, he previously was the president of the South Street Seaport Museum in New York City, and he was tenured as a research associate at the Climate Change Institute at my undergraduate alma mater, University of Maine. It's an honor to have you on today, Peter. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Jenna. It's great, great pleasure and great honor to be here. So I always like to start off my show by getting to know my guests a little bit better. So let's chat a bit about your early life. So will you fill me in on things like where you are from and what the community like and what it was like in the community that you grew up in? Well, I was I was born uh, as far away from the ocean as one can possibly get in, in, in the United States, in St. Louis, Missouri. My idea of the ocean was the Mississippi River, and I would go down there as a, as a young boy and sit uh, beside and, and, and listen to the flow of the great river, not really knowing where it came from nor where it went and how it necessarily connected with every other uh, river through the all-connecting ocean. Um, middle-class kid, um, son of professionals, um, slightly vaguely southern, uh, St. Louis is sort of a southern city. Um, there was a lot of uh, racial uh, issues going on in St. Louis as I was growing up. I was aware of those things. Uh, and it was a kind of um, interesting, informative period of my life. I was allowed to get out of it, however, uh, to go away to school. And I, ne- I never went back, actually. So I, I like to think that I was uh, that I'm corn fed and born in the Midwest, but uh, <laughs> uh, a lot of things a lot of things happened afterwards. I can remember though a couple of things about it. it this of course is pre 1970. I'm an elder, uh, and um, this is before the the sort of the environmental movement was birthed, 
And what I can remember most about St. Louis is smog. Uh, we were coal-fired, and um, the city was filled with smog most of the time. I can remember not being able to see sometimes at the end of my street. Uh, and so I, I, I do uh, remember what the world was like before there was environmental uh, regulation and where the government and, and, and the private sector stepped in to try to respect nature and to maintain her, her basic systems um, so that they would be healthy and therefore be healthy for the health of all the rest of us. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it's, 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 it, it was an odd formative experience, but I, I remember it quite well. And when I was in Beijing several years ago and, and they still had their coal dust and sand problems uh, uh, somewhat diminished now, but the fact was that everyone there always had an upper respiratory problem. There was always an infection. There was a lot of, of um, hacking and spewing and, and all the rest. And it basically was the particles in the air that were either blown down from the Gobi Desert or, or, or deposited in, uh, in the air by the coal-fired plants, many of which are still going. Um, so um, it, 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 I, I, I suspect that my lungs, by virtue of smog in St. Louis, and living uh, in Lower Manhattan during the, the uh, World Trade Center catastrophe um, are nicely coated with the wrong kind of dust. Yeah. <laughs> you know, hearing you talk about some of those formative moments in, in your life and making the connection between human health and climate change and pollution, um, you know, I think I'm starting to pick up on a thread of some of your motivators that have influenced your drive to protect these natural spaces and, you know, work toward a clean and healthy and sustainable world. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what some of those motivators are. What are the, some of the biggest motivators influencing your drive to protect the places you love? And, you know, how did some of those values form? Well, I'm susceptible to romance. Uh, and so as a, <laughs> as a, as a, as a young boy, I, I read, the, the, the books of the sea. I was infatuated by the Hornblower series. I read naval histories from the Second World War, mainly submarines. I had the idea that I was going to go to college and go to the Naval Academy. Uh, I actually began to put my hand up for that until I was pointed out to me that I was very weak in mathematics and engineering and the kinds of things that one would study in that particular educational context. And maybe I ought to think think twice. Um, that was a very good decision not to go to the Naval Academy, but it, it does sort of explain uh, a, kind, a, a, a kind of core motivator uh, that has to do with the, with the romance that we all associate uh, with the sea, the emotional affect uh, of, of, uh, which explains why we go to the coast uh, why we, um, that all major religions uh, have um, water at their essence in terms of baptism and, 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 and cleansing. Um, and so these, this is a sort of essential aspect uh, of the ocean that affects us psychologically uh, and spiritually. Um, and those things, those things matter. I think they're quite real. 
Uh, they don't get talked about that much, but even if you start looking at cultural traditions, if you start looking at the art of, of, of early peoples, you find boats, you find fish, you find uh, mythic stories of goddesses from the sea uh, who then become the core of uh, regional um, religion uh, and myth. And this is something that is spoken to us uh, over all time. Yeah, and you find that, you know, like you were touching on how the, the sea and the ocean and finds a way to weave a, a narrative thread through almost everything that we do. And from books and media and music and lore and songs, art, you know, what have you, all the way down to actually experiencing and going to the coast or going to a river or lake, spending time outdoors. There's so many different ways to learn about the natural environment and connect with it. And I'm wondering what are some of your favorite ways to get out there and connect with the outdoors? I know you touched on reading and and learning about the environment through books and stories, but are there ways and places that you enjoy visiting um, outside, you know, whether it be in the state of Maine or, or out of the state? Well, I, I, my wife and I constantly uh, observe far too frequently, oh, we're on another ferry. We're going over the ocean between two places. Uh, that that, that um, We go to the coast all the time. We walk to the coast. We 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 go to the lakes. We go. We kayak and we canoe. Uh, we are in the streams. Uh, we're in the rivers. Uh, we have a, a boat that we sail, um, and there's a kind of freedom there that is astonishingly um, privileged. Uh, first of all, um, so many people don't get to the coast or can't get out on the water, um, uh, and therefore are deprived of that amazing situation. You can see it now in the COVID world where people want to get to the coast as a kind of free and open recreational space in the best sense of that word, recreation, as if their lives have been so compromised uh, that they have to invent them all over again. And the place they go is the sea. Uh, and I, I sympathize with the need. I, I worry about the, the, all the usual public health matters, but, but, but I understand the passion that's associated with it. And I think, uh, you know, passion is a funny thing. It's sort of an assertion of, of, of realized values through, through your imagination and, 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 and then energy and then action. Um, you, 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 you indulge your passions actively. Uh, you pursue what you think are the most valuable things uh, that that in your life, and one of the places you go to find that, um, oddly enough, is 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 water, whether it's water from the mountaintop, water in the glacier, water in the stream and pond, or water in the in the in the deep ocean. It's a very therapeutic place. It's an inspirational place. It's a romantic place. It's a healing place, um, and. Uh, it's, it's important that people understand it that way and don't take it for granted uh, because if we destroy it uh, in the same way that we have destroyed natural systems on land, uh, we will have lost the last great wilderness. We will have lost that great pharmacopoeia. We will have lost all of that uh, redeeming power uh, that's inherent 
in that in the beauty of that 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 globally connecting place. Yes, many of us find solace in the sea. I I certainly fall within that category. I think it's one of my natural inclinations whenever I need a moment to breathe or want to get out for an adventure or become curious about something. You know, it's always I grew up along the coast, so I I, I think that that's certainly ingrained in my natural instincts to go to a body of water, but specifically the coastline. Um, And I would venture a guess that many of our listeners feel the same way. And it's apparent to me that you're very passionate about the natural world. And um, I think that that passion that is ingrained within you and within us is something that drives us to continue the work that we're doing. And I'm wondering, is that, you know, is that a major motivator for you um, to keep you inspired and motivated in your work? And, you know, what is that that keeps you motivated to continue communicating and teaching people and learning about the natural world? Well, uh, the short answer is, of course, um, the longer answer is has to do with a sense of responsibility uh, that comes from the privilege of having access to the water this way. Um, I think about children in the city on a hot summer day playing in the hydrant water. Uh, or uh, recently I was in Mexico City and, and the families were in the park but they were gathered not necessarily on the greensward, but they were gathered all around these big open uh, fountains in which everyone was playing, young and old, the children, of course, but the ladies with their skirts held up and the men uh, uh, swaggering about uh, uh, with their, their, their trousers rolled up. And there was a kind of, of uh, uh, wonderful community, sense of community there, um, that was 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 palpable. Um, so yes, the coast and, and, and is fine, uh, and there's coast everywhere. Uh, you know, there's coast all around Africa and all around Asia and all around North and South America. I mean, the the, the amazing thing about the ocean is that um, if you reverse the the colorization of a Mercator projection, when you look at the projection of the Earth, what you you, you see is 70% of the surface is water, and the islands are continents, uh, and the nation states are, are, are islands within the islands, and each of us is a, our community is an island within the island within the island. And these are all kind of confining spaces, but in fact, the ocean not only is the liberating space, but ironically, it's the unifying space. It's the, it's the natural system that ca- connects us all. And whether you see that as, as uh, immigration or trade, um, or whether you see it as underwater cables connecting um, uh, data and financial transaction, whether you see it as the import and export of commercial goods, food products, um, and all the rest of it, this is the scape of connection, of exchange. Uh, and it's a place that 
is it needs to be open and exclusive. Uh, and so there are regulatory structures in terms of, of uh, uh, national limits to national um, waters. And then there's the unregulated open ocean, uh, which is a commons and needs to be understood as a commons because it, it, it is a value that affects everyone on earth from whether it's not in terms of, of climate and weather uh, and storm uh, and sea level rise and food production and the discovery of new pharmaceuticals to heal diseases that we don't even know about. Uh, these, are, these are all aspects of the ocean that don't often get talked about enough, sometimes within narrow confines and certain disciplines and silos of, 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 of particular interests. Uh, but we define at the World Ocean Observatory as somewhat of an outlier definition of the ocean begin uh, as a place of exchange, a global, an integrated global um, uh, place of exchange um, that connects and transcends the kind of conventional focus on species and habitat, but links the ocean to freshwater and food and energy and health and and science and technology and finance and and community development and trade and transportation and science and, and education and spiritual values, community development, cultural traditions, all of these things are inherent in the in the in the in the oceans uh, in the in the reality of the ocean. And so we define it as beginning at the mountaintop and descending to the abyssal plain. So that the fact is that it is the entire global watershed that constitutes this connecting natural system. Yeah. And I think that that is a incredibly important point to make. And I love that you brought that up as the ocean, as the great connector. Um, you know, personally, I, and I feel like a number of listeners probably agree with me on this, but I don't want to assume. Um, so personally, you know, I, I feel like we find ourselves in a highly politicized and polarized moment in time and thinking of the ocean as a great connector, something that we all rely on and uh, for survival, for every, you know, breath that we take for food, you know, every, everything that you just noted, it, it brings us all together. And it's something that we can all work to understand and, and to protect. And unfortunately, I, I feel like climate change and science has been sucked up into this really highly polarized and politicized agendas of, you know, certain money special interests or uh, certain politicians. And it hasn't always been that way. And I would like to hear, you know, in your experience, how has communicating about conservation and climate change and the ocean evolved over time? Well, since 1970, there has been an enormous explosion of interest and, and accomplishment, achievement in terms of, of conservation, preservation, understanding, research, science, scientific study about the ocean. Uh, and for 30, almost 50, well, 50 years, we, we have had a, an upward progress uh, that has done two things. One, we know more and more and more about the value of the ocean. Um, but two, we also know more and more and more about the, um, the, the, the consequences of our um, uh, disinterest or abuse 
in in conserving and sustaining that that system. Um, and so through those years, we had the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water in the United States. We had the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act. Uh, we had various uh, iterations of a national ocean policy. Um, we had a, a kind of progressive, um, bipartisan um, uh, understanding that we needed to know about this uh, if we were going to, to, to use it appropriately. Somewhere along the way, I think specifically it had something to do when uh, oil and gas needed to move offshore to provide for a greater volume to feed our uh, society based entirely on unlimited growth and consumption, uh, that we began to um, see those interests intrude uh, and we began to uh, see uh, the kind of need to harvest as much seafood, for example, from the ocean as possible in order to feed the multitudes, but, uh, but to do it in such a way that there were no limits. Um, we did have an, uh, an, an ongoing regime of regulatory structures, policy decisions, statutes uh, that were passed to protect the ocean, uh, and they were uh, essentially doing great work. If you uh, remember the smog in St. Louis, and you don't, and, and if you're there now, you don't see it, uh, or if you uh, you remember the river in Chicago or in in Cleveland, which burst into flame because of the the pollution and chemical waste. Uh, when you remember those things, and you realize the effect of those laws and regulations which were there to control abuse. They weren't just gratuitous people saying, oh, we're, we want to be in your life. These were laws that were passed to protect the majority of the people from certain types of interests that didn't care and would do anything without, uh, without regulation um, uh, for their own personal profit. Okay, I'm, I, I understand capitalism. That's, that's, that's fine, but it gets to the point where it becomes not only irresponsible, uh, but destructive. And we have now gotten to a point where uh, we have active disconnectors and regressive um, uh, behavior in play. Uh, and the, 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 the loss over the last three years in terms of regulatory structure in, to protect the environment has just been astonishing. Um, it is just perverse, in my opinion. Uh, and we are going to pay for it. We're already paying for it uh, in, in human health um, uh, and, and in death um, and, and, and in the decline of our economy. Um, uh, all of these things now have brought home a horrible reality that, uh, in my view, the old paradigm of, of unlimited growth um, in, the, in the name of consumption enabled by fossil fuels is, is over. It is a bankrupt paradigm. Uh, and it is, it, it, it is uh, at a point now where alternatives and finance and uh, incentives and subsidies all have to be taken away from the old applications uh, to the oil and gas industry, among others, 
um, uh, to essentially re-incentivize how we're going to be, um, who, how, and what we're going to be uh, after COVID. Um, we've been given an astonishing wake-up call. Uh, it's terribly, terribly sad. And it's, it's so unnecessary, in fact. Uh, and yet you can also look at it as an opportunity where realists can see that a new paradigm is essential for human survival. And I, my book, The Once and Future Ocean, argues that that new paradigm is um, uh, managed growth uh, in the name of sustainability uh, and, and enabled by the most um, important, essential, pervasive natural system on Earth, which is the ocean freshwater continuum. Um, uh, in the only 3% of the water on earth is fresh. And of that 2% is locked in the poles, frozen in the Arctic and Antarctic, which means that only 1% of the water on earth has been available for human consumption worldwide. Now, it doesn't take much to understand that when you look around and you start looking at conflict around the world, you see that much, it, it, it often, far too often, comes down to water. If you look at the wars in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, Iran, and Iraq, down the cradle of civilization, the watershed from, from the, the eastern mountains in Turkey all the way down through into the Persian Gulf, uh, uh, you see that uh, these uh, rivers, this watershed, this water uh, essentially enabled civilization then and now. Uh, and when it is disrupted and fought over because it has nothing to do with water, it has everything to do with oil, then what are the people to do who are basically farming and dependent uh, on that water? They leave. And they become a migration problem, an emigration problem, an immigration problem. They become people stranded on rafts and half sunken boats in the Mediterranean, fleeing for a new opportunity um, that is based on the deprivation of water. Uh, you can look at the Israel-Palestine Israel conflict and see it as a water-based conflict, um, when in fact, um, Israel as a nation state, a young nation state, began to divert the water from the Jordan River to create their great miracle uh, of uh, agriculture in their central valley, uh, which ena enabled the state to flourish, but at the same time took um, away uh, a, a, a water source that was in great was, was dependent, uh, on which Palestine was dependent. And you see it today, even in the expansion of communities, where suddenly uh, the wells are taken over uh, and you, you, a line gets moved and suddenly a well that has served a community in Palestine for years is no longer available. Uh, you can see it in Flint, Michigan, where suddenly a political decision essentially destroys the freshwater supply in a community that still has not recovered. The children are still ill. The, 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 
the distribution system has not been replaced. Uh, the community uh, has never recovered. Uh, how do you sell property in Flint, Michigan, if you have no reliable city water? Um, we have cities like Sao Paulo, Brazil, and um, uh, that have are limited by by water water crises, uh, and this is all as a result of essentially the the extraction industry, um, uh, the clear cutting, uh, oil and gas exploration, mining, uh, 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 and the consequent erosion uh, and uh, disruption of natural systems, and um, uh, this affects people desperately all over the world. Uh, so it's not about some near-term political advantage. It's about the health of basically not just the, our each person, each individual, but every family, um, every, every town, every city, every state, every nation state uh, is, cannot survive without adequate fresh water. And the ocean is the only place where we can go to get that water now. We've already begun to exhaust the underground water systems, the aquifers. Uh, Southern Florida is a perfect example. And where are they going to go? Where is that water going to come from? And it has to come from desalination. It has to come from um, different energy sources to, 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 uh, to uh, mitigate uh, the damage that's already been done by others. It has to be. It has to be accompanied by legislation, by creative and uh, incentives and subsidies that will allow us to essentially have a plan to go forward and um, and and survive. To go backward is a disaster, frankly. The old normal is now abnormal. It is bankrupt. It is proven so. And the money and the markets are already telling us. You now have smart money that has gone to finance alternative energy, uh, which now in many countries is, is essentially providing more jobs and more energy than the old-fashioned oil and gas and coal uh, systems. Um, you have the potential of geothermal energy in the ocean, ocean uh, uh, conversion, thermal conversion, uh, which could be an astonishingly power, powerful addition to the energy um, arsenal. Um, so the ocean affects our future in such a way that the basics of our lives, our water, our food, uh, uh, and our interconnections um, uh, must rely uh, and um, we, we ignore that or contradict it at great, great risk. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. 
Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. So thinking about how interconnected all of this is and how integral healthy communities and healthy water, you know, how directly tied they are to each other. Um, And in addition to so many other facets of our society, what does success look like to you when we look forward to a future of, you know, ideally climate resilient cities, healthy communities, a thriving economy, what does sustainability mean and, and what does success look like to you? Well, we, we, frankly, we have all the technology and the, fi- uh, and the financial wherewithal um, to make those things happen. Uh, there are plan after plan after plan, invention after invention, technology after technology uh, that is available to us. What we don't have is the political will. Uh, And until we somehow can garner the political will to understand that this must happen if we are to have any kind of quality of life in the future, um, far better than what we have had in the past, maybe not so filled with uh, uh, certain types of, of, of toys and certain types of behavior, but in fact, the quality of life that is available for our children and our grandchildren. I have grandchildren. I I can't imagine what the world will be like for them unless we do something beginning right away. So when are we going to wake up? What will it take for people as individuals and as groups and as as governments to understand that this must occur and that the narrow-minded, self-interested fear of change is exactly the wrong um, platform on which to build a future? So it, 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 it's a, it's a bottom-up situation. If government won't do it for us, then we have to do it ourselves. And that's the kind of transformative, revolutionary kind of approach that I think is uh, available to us. We don't, we, we don't have to necessarily invent all the tools that we need. They're there. And there are cities like New York and many others that have have put into place all kinds of protections and innovations and um, changes, simple changes uh, to how they behave, uh, both in terms of governance and in, and in, and in economic development, um, that will address these things. They've seen in the storm damage that's been done uh, 
uh, exactly what it means to a city to be inundated and flooded. The subway system flooded. A massive transportation system that handles, I don't know, 12 million people a day brought to its knees. You cannot allow that to happen if you expect the city to survive. So you have to do, you have to adapt and you have to mitigate. Um, those are those are buzzwords that get used a lot in this world, in the, in the environmental world. Uh, adapting to something is basically good uh, because it essentially allows you to shift your behaviors in such a way that better respond to the forces that are before you. Mitigate is sort of the classic engineering solution where we're going to we're going to mitigate by dikes and and levees and and hydraulic systems that somehow will control um, and protect uh, the 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 areas threatened. But for me, the word is invention. Uh, we need to invent our way out, and it's 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 been it's been the way of every great civilization that they were they. Thrived on the idea of creativity and invention, and those things brought to bear the tools that built civilization over these years and lifted the quality of life of literally hundreds of millions of people. Uh, oil and gas actually did that too for a long time. There's not a person on earth that did not and has not benefited from from energy derived from oil and gas until the consequences overwhelmed the benefits. And when that happened, it became clear that we needed to find another way. And that way lies before us. And it's not that complicated other if, if, if people actually have the courage um, and the proactive proaction uh, to, to make it happen. And the way you do that is that you integrate and you um, you engage and you vote uh, and you act locally. You act within your own home. You act within uh, within your business, and you essentially advocate and implement uh, and invent the change that you need. Uh, we're we're seeing it in some ways now, sadly, through COVID, in terms of. What's the office going to look like uh, in five years? Will it be the same? Uh, what will our transportation system look like? Uh, will it be the same? Uh, what 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 will our cultural uh, uh, institutions? Uh, I ran a museum for twenty years. I spent the entire time inventing new ideas and programs uh, that that took the museum into a different a different space that essentially. Uh, built on the, the the essential verities of what museums do, but then became much more inventive and publicly engaged to found public schools, for example. Founded, personally founded two public schools, one in New Haven, Connecticut, called the Sound School, and another in New, New York uh, called the Harbor School on Governor's Island in New York. These are public education institutions that use the ocean as the focus of all of the curriculum. So if you're studying science, fine. If you're studying math, it's also relevant. If you're studying history and social studies, also relevant. If you're studying vocational trades, a huge opportunity for young people in, in, in a growing uh, understanding uh, and opportunity built into the blue economy, the development of the blue economy. There's a whole prospect out there uh, that needs to be taken in hand. 
And where's the urgency? Where's the imagination? Where's the commitment? And that's what World Ocean Observatory is trying to do, is essentially to use, to advocate for this through communications, using every possible platform we have, whether it's whether it's syndicated radio or aggregated video or a digital magazine or a, a, a global forum on solutions, whether it's um, uh, online exhibits, profiles of exemplars, uh, educational curriculum, a virtual aquarium that we're building that will allow for every student or any individual on earth, anywhere at any time, on any device, to access uh, the aquarium experience followed, uh, built on principles of ocean literacy that will relate them, relate the national, the natural world to the social world uh, in a way um, that will reach children in their formative years, uh, you know, middle and middle school, elementary school and middle school, high school, so that their values are set. So as they go forward to pursue, pr pr provide for themselves and build careers, it will be built on um, this, the, the values inherent in the new parameters. I, I think this is a great time to pivot to talking a little bit more about your work with World Ocean Observatory, because something that I really hold as a central value to this show is, you know, not only highlighting the really interesting and inspiring folks that um, I meet, you know, throughout my day and throughout my career and you know, folks that are doing incredible work along the shoreline or have great stories to tell and insight to share, but providing our listeners an opportunity to learn about ways they can engage with the ocean and learn about the ocean and explore their curiosities. And I think World Ocean Observatory is a great resource for that. Um, so I know you touched on a little bit of what you all do, but will you fill the listeners in on what World Ocean Observatory is all about and, you know, what your mission and your priorities are. Well, as I said, we advocate through communications, but we use every platform. Uh, and so I've made done 550 editions of World Ocean Radio, which is syndicated in the United States and also in New Zealand and Australia and Hong Kong and on both coasts of Africa uh, through Internet radio. We have a digital magazine, which is thematic based. We have a new forum for ocean solutions where people who are looking forward have a platform to put something out for, for the world to discover. Uh, we tend to break down silos. Uh, we tend to celebrate other people's success. Uh, and we, we do that by relentless social media. Um, once is never enough. Uh, and you need to remind people again and again and again from every direction, using every perspective, using every tool at hand. So we're at 910,000 followers, 900, yeah, 910,000 followers on Facebook this morning. Uh, I want to reach millions of people, millions. And they're all over the world, the people that follow, follow the website. And it's posted three and five, six, seven times every day with new stories, new successes, new profiles, fresh ideas, um, and it, it, immerse yourself in that. And you, then you will find in all of that um, the thing that appeals to you the most, whether you're a young person looking for a career, whether you're an investor looking for some place that's progressive in which to invest, 
um, whether you're a teacher looking for curriculum, we have an enormous catalog of curricular activities organized by grade and subject. Uh, we have our own curriculum catalog. Um, uh, we have a, a, a place called Our Ocean Space where teachers in classrooms can post reports uh, done by their students. Kids these days are so incredible with the tools that are available with PowerPoint and, and all the rest of it. So they go out in the field in the seventh, sixth, seventh grade, and they come back with really sophisticated reports where they can, they can post those up uh, and um, on, uh, on our ocean space for other students and other teachers uh, to see. We've actually had virtual events where um, the parents of, class, of classes have come, to, come together and the kids have presented uh, the program uh, and the parents you know, show up uh, to, to as if it was the school play. Uh, we've had a wonderful case where we had a school a class in uh, San Diego uh, partner with the same same grade grade level in a, in I think it was Osaka Japan, and they did the same program. They did went out and they looked at the same resources in North America and Japan, and they put their two reports together and it mixed and matched. They compared and contrast. Uh, it was a fantastic incident that was essentially invented by two creative teachers, and our job is to inspire those teachers, provide them the resource inspire uh, young people, provide them access, inspire our colleagues and celebrate their, their achievements and spread the word and build a global constituency of citizens of the ocean. So thinking about, you know, in addition to the classroom and educational resources on the website, if somebody out there is listening to this and they're interested in in, in you know contributing information to the website or research that they're doing, um, is this open to more than just classrooms and teachers? Is this something that um, you know citizen scientists and people that are ocean advocates or policymakers, you know, who can contribute to the website and where does the information come from? We, we curate it. It comes from everywhere. We find a great deal of it because we're constantly looking for it and posting it, posting it up. Uh, <clears throat> just, to, just today, I think we posted up a, a, a whole link on, on women oceanographers. Somebody sent us a link. I saw it. I said, wow, this is terrific. We put it up. Um, they um, uh, Today, I, just 10 minutes, 20 minutes ago, uh, I got a, an email from a distinguished professor uh, who wants to communicate beyond the academic journals, uh, and it ha he's a he is a uh, um, a marine microbiologist, and that's an amazingly important field for the ocean. Uh, and he asked if he could contribute, and we have a system whereby he he would discuss with our curator, and uh, they would agree on 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 a on a on a some kind of paper, but it's not an academic, academic paper that's incomprehensible and inaccessible to the public. Basically, it puts it in accessible English, describes it, describes its value, um, and that gets put out as a potential solution. Um, if we, if there's a news event, 
that we feel that is is important. That will go out on the World Ocean Observatory Facebook page. Um, if um, I'm just trying to think, uh, just off the top of my head, uh, if there's a, 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 a new idea of someone that is trying to develop um, a, um, a software solution uh, for monitoring fishing vessels, uh, we or containers. Uh, just yesterday, I came across two of those. We'll put those up and show them that they're that it's it's out there. Now that benefits those those organizations, but it also shows and demonstrates that there are people all over the world uh, trying to solve the problem. They often just don't know the other one exists because they spend a lot of time just talking to the people that they already know, and it doesn't get beyond. Uh, there, that circle, that professional circle of acquaintance, uh, you see that in the in these meetings that we go to, uh, these conferences, and you see, uh, you see these meetings and conferences that we go to, and you see that it's often the same people, and they are moving every six months, and they're advancing the story incrementally, and they're studying and they're doing all sorts of important work. I, I don't want to denigrate that that work, but it goes at a snail's pace and it doesn't allow for um, outliers. Uh, it somehow has a kind of implicit barrier uh, to fresh thinking. And I think that's a malaise that affects the, the conservation uh, movement uh, itself. Um, you know, uh, we have been doing the same thing for successfully for 50 years, and we can look at marine protected areas, for example, or coastal protection, in which there's been tremendous success. But what else? What more? And, and, and so we see organizations that get essentially kind of concretized and focused and sort of stuck. And if you try to approach those organizations, whether they're the implementers or they're funders, you find a kind of weird resistance. And infrequently, these organizations are fighting with each other, they're competing with each other, and they're actually competing for the same money. So it's, it, it, it's, 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 it needs to be looked at, it needs to be shaken up. We should do it ourselves because we have, we know the values that thus, that will, which, which are the foundation on which is this, this will all be based. We know what those values are, but we need to open our minds and recommit ourselves. And if it means reinventing ourselves in terms of who we are and how we do things, that's exactly the right thing to do. <laughs> I love it. I think that this is the exact message that, you know, everybody needs to hear. I think that there's plenty of space for all different kinds of people from all different parts of the world, backgrounds, belief systems, you know, education levels. This problem of climate change that we're facing is, you know, I can't think of anything larger or more complex and it's an all hands on deck situation. And, you know, I, a lot of the people that I interact with often think that you need to be working in a NGO space or in a job where you focus on conservation to address it. And I think that that is something that, you know, we need to reframe our thinking on it and be a little more inclusive and not just a little more inclusive, a lot more inclusive of the way that we approach 
solving this problem because um, we're well, going to need everybody. Yeah, young people especially. I mean, it's true. There is this sort of uh, environmental studies is this massively growing uh, undergraduate uh, major, and then there are no jobs. And so then you have to find base that that gives you a value foundation. But now you have to go find the professional application of those values. So for, I'll give you an example. You have something called the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has been vilified a lot. Um, but they're, 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 a, they're mandated by Congress. They're funded by Congress. They actually have authority that transcends the authority of states. Um, uh, and they have three uh, purposes. One is navig uh, keeping open uh, navigational, navigational waters. Uh, there's protection, um, uh, flood protection, flood control and protection. And there's environmental con conservation. That's in their mission. Now, traditionally, all of that work has been done by engineers who were trained in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And they were trained in a certain way of doing things. And they were very good at adapting and mitigating. But they didn't have the full, the full mission in, in, in their minds necessarily to understand that if any one of the adaptations or mitigations uh, did, did not also include environmental conservation, then they weren't fulfilling the mission and they were only do it solving two-thirds of the problem. And that wasn't a good answer. So now you have a whole lot of people who are coming out of engineering school and they have been, they've been formed in this context of environmental protection. And they have a different value set that they bring. So that skill set coupled to that shifted value set is an amazingly powerful opportunity for change. And that's true everywhere. So in terms of coastal management, city planning, uh, pharmaceutical developments, public health agencies, uh, water in the water industry and the water, water sanitation and distri distribution, all of these things need a new, new, new youth, <coughs> excuse me, youth skilled, trained, based on this, this sort of progressive conservation oriented foundation value set, and they will make the difference. And they will earn funds and they can have their families and they can go to the beach. So I want to, I want to make sure that people have an opportunity to hear how they can connect with world ocean observatory and find world ocean radio and contribute their ideas and resources and connect with you all. Um, if they are you know, sitting at home, you know, as fired up listening to this episode, because I feel like there's so much energy um, coming out of this episode. And I love it so much. I, I can only imagine folks listening are interested in learning about how they can engage with you and your organization. So this energy here that's coming out of a tiny little organization that's, you know, sequestered on the coast of Maine. Uh, it ha operates on almost no money. Uh, it is, it, it is e efficient, economical, effective, uh, imaginative, and relentlessly active. 
So if that energy can create a magic, then I invite people to become part of the magic. And how do they do that? It's not just talking to me. It's taking what they can find by going to the site, exploring, uh, the go to the link for a site at a glance, and get lost there. It's enormous. It's as wide and deep and dynamic as the ocean itself. Go in there and find the place or the thing that interests you. Take that and take it away from me and go do it yourself. Go take it to your church, to your business, to your child's classroom, to your um, social organization, and say, we need to do this because we're going to be part of an integral, an integral process, an integrated process that is worldwide, that is going to change the way we see and interact with the world in the name of human survival. So little comments back and forth with me, fine. That, I'm happy to do that. But what I really want people to do is to find the magic, engage with the magic, perform the magic, vote, act, and understand that it's your ocean to save. Not mine, your ocean to save. And I'm giving you tools. I'm giving you information. There's in so much information there, you will be overwhelmed. Pick something. Pick any one. And if everyone that hears me today picked a different one and took this energy and took it out into the world, we'd be on our way. But it's not good enough to sit down and study and click um, it's not even good enough to look at a Facebook post and not share it. Sharing it is a huge thing because sharing a, a post amongst your network builds the network exponentially. So you want to do all of the things that have been done sort of passively. You want to do them actively. And we've given you a huge package of magic tricks and pick one and learn how to do it and perform it and perform it in front of any audience you choose and collectively we'll save the ocean. And by the way, just to give you something to work toward, we'll save civilization. You have your charge, everybody. <laughs> it's a big one, but we all are empowered and can just do, I know that it seems like a large problem, but I, you know, Find what you can control and influence the folks that are within your community and, you know, in your circles and act as a connector and an educator. Um, and it'll be just so incredible to see the change that you can spark by realizing the power that each and every one of us has. And um, that, well, quickly, it's, it's worldoceanobservatory.org, correct? And then that's the same as your social media handles. Right, it's worldoceanobservatory.org. Uh, you can also um, um, search World Ocean Radio. You can you can uh, uh, you can join us. We without there's no membership fee. You can just join us and get our newsletter. 
Uh, it's also posted on social media, so there's uh, you can find it that way. You can follow us on all the social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook particularly, um, uh, Twitter, all the rest. Um, and then when you have a success, when you've essentially accomplished what you set out to do, then let us know. And we'll celebrate that too. Um, because I think that's what we all need. We all are thinking that we're alone and we're just not. And if you start looking at certain examples, plastic bags, for example, if we cut off plastic bags at the source and say that there is no market by essentially not using them or having small little ordinances in small towns all over America where they don't get used, then you're making a huge contribution to rectifying the problem by taking away the market. Don't buy fish that you don't know that, that, that if you don't know it's been sustainably caught uh, and, and compare that fish to the various Marine Stewardship Council and other criteria that tell you what, what sustainable fish looks like. Um, talk about water conservation in your schools. Talk about water conservation in your clubs. Um, the, every one of these things actually accrues value back to the sustainability of the, of the ocean freshwater continuum, which is the essence of what will support us um, into the future. So I'd like to wrap up my show with a series of broader questions just to glean any last insights and expertise that I can from my guests. Um, so I've got three, but it's like three and a half slash four questions for you um, that focus a little bit more on broader climate issues and some final words of advice. So starting with, what do you think is the most pressing environmental challenge that we are faced with? Well, you know, climate is the word that gets used, but climate has sort of been abused and 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 disenfranchised. There, there are so many subsets to the implications of climate uh, that I urge people to, 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 to look at those and go there for their solutions. It all, you know, right now, the most invisible critical thing um, for the ocean is acidification. And yet nobody knows anything about it. It basically pervades all the ocean. It comes out of the, 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 the uh, emissions problem. It changes the pH of the ocean. It affects growth within the entire water column. It's one of the hardest things that we will ever be able to do to bring, bring back to what is appropriate and normal uh, for, for the and healthy for the natural system. But there are many other aspects of that where you go to the other end of the problem and you stop things at the source. You know, we're always trying to mitigate things at the end. But if we actually go to the source of the problem, if we deny plastic a market, then market the plastic doesn't get used. It doesn't use the energy and the oil and gas energy. It's an oil-based product. It doesn't get thrown over the side or put into the rivers. It doesn't aggregate into islands floating in the open ocean. It doesn't wear down into microbeads that are then consumed by fish and then eaten by us so that, in fact, we are essentially consuming all of the negativity of that process 
by virtue of not being able to stop it at the source. You can clean it up. You can clean the beaches. You can go and strain it all out of the out of the open sea. That's great. But the real way to solve the problem is to stop it at the source. And that's the same way with point source pollution. That's the same way with air pollution. That's the same way with um, uh, uh, invasive species. It's the same way with pervasive negative subsidies uh, and incentives. Uh, these things need to be stopped at the source, and then the problem will go away. And we won't be having to deal all the way at the other end when all the damage has been done, and we can put our energy elsewhere. So it's so easy to get overwhelmed, feel overwhelmed, and get bogged down in this massive complex problem that we are trying to address with climate change and everything that falls under that massive umbrella. But I'm wondering, you know, there are areas for hope. And I'm wondering what gives you hope as we move forward? Well, what's the opposite of hope? Despair? <laughs> yeah, I think. So it's a pretty, isn't it a pretty easy choice? Isn't it a, isn't it a pretty easy choice that, that if, you can't if you if you if you don't want to be despairing, then you have to be hopeful, and you can realize hope by applying yourself, and you will find the rewards that are measurable on the ground, but they're also measurable inside your psyche. They provide gratification to you for having done something creative and progressive and well that you've made a difference. If everybody on earth did that and took one thing and made that difference, collectively we would be living in a utopia. And what we, if, if we don't do it, then we will be living in what we are slowly approaching, which is a kind of dystopia, chaotic collapse. Um, and that's not acceptable. It's not acceptable for our, for, 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 for our health and for the future of our children. And so it, there's, there is no choice. You must be hopeful. And then you can pick the thing that gives you peace and satisfaction, gratification for having done it. And whether it's, it's just cleaning up the beach in your place, or uh, I see people cleaning, walking out all by themselves as individual with bags and just picking up trash. I see a group of people nearby me who are essentially creating a little a climate conference for high school kids. Well, that's terrific. The high school kids are presenting. They're doing the research. They're doing all the stuff that would be done in some high-level UN conference. But they're changing the mindset of those young people as they, they go forward. Um, uh, there are just innumerable examples. Even reading environmentally um, biased, let's say, stories to young children. Reading a story about what goes on in a vernal pool to a young child who will be caught up in the fancy and the, and the, and the curiosity and the, and the eccentricity of those natural processes about which people don't know very much. That creates a spark of, of curiosity that can be carried forward. 
You know, I don't want to be an astronaut anymore, says the young boy. I want to be an aquanaut. <laughs> I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be Cinderella. Um, I want to be Sylvia Earle. I, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be the, 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 a leader in promoting a set of fresh values uh, that will change the world. That's hopefulness. And there's not a soul on earth that can't do it one way or another. And people will say, Peter, well, you come from a background, you have this privilege, <coughs> you don't really know adversity. I, I'll tell you, some of the most uh, courageous and interesting and exceptional environmental things have been done in places where you just don't understand how it could possibly happen. If you look at how how fish is is shared uh, in in the slums of 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 of, of, of Mumbai, you go to the fish market, and there are all these women, and they have no tools. They have baskets. They're 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 desperately impoverished. They're living in slums. Thousands of them living in these confined spaces that are hammered together by corrugated tin and packing crates and plastic sheet, uh, tarps and things like that. They come and they are basically taking the leftover fish. What isn't market quality? They take it. They put it in their little baskets. They put it on their head and they go out and they distribute that fish um, as a business along a, a, a whole uh, route within the slum. So they're basically taking protein that would at one point would have been otherwise hosed into the ocean and turned it into a business that supports them and provides protein to people who would otherwise be deprived of it. Now, that's just one tiny example in a place which most of us can't even imagine how desperate it is. Uh, and the same thing is true with water and how water is distributed. And how all of that, the water carriers, and how all of this is done in such a way that the that the the, the values of necessity and sustainability are in play, and active, and lived by, and shared amongst a whole lot of people who otherwise would have no access. So we can do this, and we certainly can do it in the what was formerly the most richest country on earth. Um, and we can do that by, by using our ingenuity uh, and our, um, our physical and, 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 and political commitment. Uh, and if I can get any single one today, any person out there listening today, to take that burden on and say, okay, Peter, I don't have to talk to you. I've heard enough of you. I spent a whole hour listening to you. I'm going to go tell your story, but I'm going to go tell my story. I'm going to tell it my way. Because remember, it's your ocean, not mine. I'm just a enabler. <laughs> I'm just a mouth. Just a mouth. <laughs> so taking that hope and that energy and rolling that over into this last two-part question, which is one, what is the best advice you've ever been given? And then two, flipping that into what advice do you have for our listeners? 
Well, I think I said it before. One guy uh, one day told me, um, he told me two things. Uh, one is, Peter, you're always trying to hit home runs. And baseball games are won by guys slapping singles. If you keep slapping singles, you'll drive in the runs and you'll get you'll win the game. Instead of swinging for the fences and think you're going to do it with one one beautiful arc um, that uh, doesn't happen that often. So uh, slap singles, take it one step at a time, one day at a time. The other thing he said to me was. Uh, because I spent my entire life trying to raise money for charitable causes, for not-for-profit organizations. He said, Peter, money follows magic. Create the magic. I mentioned magic before. If you create the magic, people people will, will step up and actually begin to offer you resources because they, they've been infected by the magic and they know it's going to work. They know it's going to work. They know it's not an illusion. And so that that those those the thing that follows the power of understanding the magic um, can can translate into monetary contribution, sure, just as it can translate into votes or or personal actions or galvanizing community actions. And so that is those little homilies. Uh, he uh, behind my desk, you can't see it. There's a little hand painted sign that he gave me. He said. It says, money follows magic, rewards follow deeds. So if you can make the magic, um, rewards will follow, but the magic is basically deed-based. It's action-based. It's accomplishment-based. And and uh, I followed that creed ever since. I, I love it. It's great advice. Um, and, you know, well, Peter, I, I just thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. It was magical. <laughs> and um, I just can't wait for our listeners. Well, go out and do this. something. Yeah, go out and right? do something, I hope, Jenna. I hope that I'm certainly fired up. I'm going to go do something, but I hope everybody else listening does too. <laughs> uh, so thank you so much. I, uh, I'd also like to thank the listeners out there. And if you enjoyed this show and want to hear others like it, check out the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribes, rates, and reviews are always encouraged. You can connect with us on social media on Twitter at Coastal News 365 and on Facebook. We are the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today. So find us online and let's chat about our beautiful coastline.